There are some themes in the Bible that are so primal, so central, so key that they appear from the earliest pages all the way to the end. Sometimes front and center and sometimes sort of buried underneath, but these themes are woven throughout the entire Bible, like the theme of a garden. You only have to turn to page two in the Bible to see a garden, right? The one called Eden, which means paradise. And there's a couple that will live there, although they'll get kicked out pretty quick. But garden imagery is there throughout. The prophets, some of them will compare Israel's flourishing to like a garden growing. And when Israel doesn't do so well, they'll say it's more like thorns and thistles coming up. And even in the New Testament, Jesus will tell parables about seeds and gardens, and the book of Revelation will describe that final heavenly city with a river running through it and a tree just like in that first garden. It runs throughout the whole of Scripture. Same thing for journeying, the theme of journeys. Abraham and Sarah's life will be defined by leaving home and going Moses will lead the children of Israel out of Egypt and they will journey for 40 years in the wilderness and eventually into that land. And again in the New Testament, Jesus is described as having no place to lay his head, so he's always journeying somewhere. And Paul, he went on missionary journeys. And it's the same for the theme that is found in our scripture there at the very end. It's the theme of light. Light is so central to the biblical message that it's found in the very first verses, even before you get to that garden. You remember it, as Genesis tells it, God says, let there be light, but before there's light, there is this primordial darkness. And my mind is instantly taken back to middle school when I went camping with my dad and granddad about an hour north of Houston in Huntsville State Park. It's forest. So unlike the city, it's dark. And I remember walking back to the campsite with the flashlight and wondering, I wonder, you know, like, how dark is darkness? So click. And it was nothing like your room when you're a kid at night. It was a darkness where you couldn't see darkness. It just, well, you know. And Genesis says, out of that kind of darkness, the voice says, let there be light. And the world was lit up. And that theme will be carried on. Isaiah, the prophet, he'll talk about a light shining in the darkness. God will lead the children of Israel through the wilderness with a fire. Jesus will call himself the light of the world. And in the book of Revelation, that city will have no moon and stars and sun because God will be its light. So it's no surprise that when Luke gets around to telling the Christmas story, he features light. Remember, the angels appear to the shepherds, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. That, that's a kind of, you know, this kind of light, shielding your eyes. I don't know if sheep squint, but they would have. It's a bright light. And when they bring the baby Jesus to be dedicated, Simeon says he'll be a light to the nations. So when we read this passage, Zechariah, the father of John the baptizer, is telling the story of he and his cousin Jesus who will come along, and here's the phrase, and dawn will break from on high for those who sit in darkness. 
for those who sit in darkness. The problem with reading the Gospels, and especially at Christmas time, it's probably true any other time too, is that there are really two levels of reading, and the first one's the one most of us fall into. It's a kind of trap in a way, and that is we kind of find ourselves taken back to the manger scene. But that is not what Luke's doing. Luke is not taking us back to the manger scene. Luke is bringing the manger scene or the birth of Jesus and John, the whole Christmas story, into the present because Luke wrote 50 years after Jesus. He wasn't there when Jesus was born. He is bringing the story to his moment, which was a time when Rome occupied Jerusalem, a time when Rome had destroyed the temple. That is always behind the scenes. And in a sense, what Luke did then is bringing that story to his day, we have to keep doing because, let's face it, there is still a lot of darkness in the world. I think, when I think about that light, I think about two great Jewish traditions. They're both midrashes that the rabbis told. Midrash is just a story about a story. The first one you can't really appreciate unless you remember this little detail. In Genesis, when it describes creation, on the fourth day, God creates light. Moon, stars, sun. But wait, on the first day, God said, let there be light. So what, how does that work? Well, the Jews came up with this clever little thing. The rabbis said, oh, on the first day, God created light. You know, lightness. Light, not a specific one, but a kind of atmosphere. With that in mind, there was this 16th century rabbi who came up with this brilliant image. He said, when God created light, God took these 10 clay jars and poured light into all of them. But, you know, the story doesn't go so well. That first couple gets kicked out of the garden and the pots get tumped over and broken and the light spills out, all as a result of the curse. And so this rabbi, he came up with this term, tikkun olam, it just in Hebrew means to restore or repair the world. The idea is that we'll, we'll glue these vessels back together and we'll collect the light and shine it into the darkness. The second one is a kind of way of telling time. For us, midnight marks the change, one day to the next, but not in Jewish telling of time. I mean, Genesis says there was evening and there was morning the first day. So the day begins at sundown, but you've watched the sun go down. I mean, at what point on the horizon would you say, oh, that's it, that, now it's night. So they came up with this clever thing. When the first star in the sky appears, Ah, it's still day. Second star appears, well, now you've got dusk. But when the third star appears, that's night. It's clever, but it makes me wonder. How do you know when dawn is breaking? How do you know when there is enough light in the world to make the dark recede? What's, what's the marker? This past Thursday, our four-year-old granddaughter, preschool where she attends, they had their little Christmas concert. 
girls dressed like angels, boys dressed like shepherds, and they got up on the risers, and, you know, they're just looking around and waving and sometimes singing. I mean, that was part of it. And all the parents and grandparents don't care. It doesn't matter. As long as none of them fall off the risers, they got their smartphones out, and they're just taking pictures, and afterwards, it is nothing but goosebumps. I mean, I felt it. Everybody there felt it. It's Christmas cheer. But as Luke tells it, telling the story of John's birth and his cousin Jesus, there is a darkness there. There is a holy child born for those who sit in darkness. Thinking about the birth of John and Jesus, I think about the children in our day who sit in darkness. I read this week, it's mind-boggling, 10 million children are trafficked every year around the globe and in our own country. The one site that I looked at had a map of the United States with little dots indicating cases of trafficking and it looked like a weather report and the entire country was about to be hit with snow. Or what about world hunger? You can think about world hunger, but even in the states, one in five children in the states will go hungry this year, even as we scrape leftovers down the disposal. It's overwhelming. Children sitting in darkness. One of the memoirs I just finished, the author's brother, they, they grew up Roman Catholic, acolytes, going to church, beloved Roman Catholic Church and this priest who unfortunately betrayed their trust. And the author's brother still suffers. And his friend, who was also molested, he ended up committing suicide. Children who walk in darkness. And this week, one of our grandkids went to Children's Mercy just to see about getting tubes in the ears, but... I asked, you know, what, what did you see? Because every time I'm in there, yes, it's, it's lit and there are clowns and there are murals, but the cancers alone, how much darkness is there in a child's world? And flying home, just a few weeks ago, flying home from San Diego, right across the aisle, just one row up, this family who was treating their kids like they were obstinate barn animals. It wasn't the kind of thing you could report. It was within the bounds. But when the flight attendant and I both heard it and saw it, we both winced. And that's in public. What do they do behind closed doors? And you've, you've, you've stood in line at Target, and you've seen it. The children who sit in darkness. Luke's story of Christmas starts in darkness. But that's not the end of it. The good news of Luke's Christmas story is that light is breaking in. The dawn from on high will break in for those who sit in darkness. Now, it's a little bit of light. You, you know yesterday was the shortest day of the year and last night the longest night of the year. So from now till June, it's going to get brighter, right? Longer days. Well, kind of like, 
Can you tell the difference from one day to the next? That's how Advent tells time. The light of God is breaking in, but it is so small. And it is tied to us working for justice. But the thing is, it works. Over time, it works. I mean, a candle's not much light, but a bunch of them makes a difference. It's why we'll, we'll light them two nights from now. We'll light those candles. It's why we drive through the plaza. We've seen lights before, but we long for light. Fred Craddock, the great disciples, preacher and teacher, he grew up in rural Tennessee, and he said they used to play hide-and-seek, but one version of it they would play at night. They'd have a flashlight and the person counting, and so Fred decided he'd hide under the wooden steps leading up to the porch. So he shimmied under there, and he crouched, and he kind of calmed his beating heart and his breathing. And then the boy with the flashlight, ready or not, here I come. And he could see the light going around. They were never going to find him. In fact, Fred said to himself, they're never going to find me. There's no way. This went on for minutes, and finally Fred kind of panicked, and he thought, they're never going to find me. I mean, they're never going to find me. So he just, he just stuck out one foot, and there it was, the light. I see you, Fred. Come on out. Come on. Now, why'd he do that? I mean, the answer is pretty obvious, right? Because he, he wanted what all of God's children want, to be found by the light, 